0: everybody, Welcome to Alumless. It is Friday, the 14th of April. Great to have you joining us. I am Ryan Catherwood, the gentleman on the screen hanging out in a hotel room. Uh, amongst his many travels is Chris Marshall. Uh, this is a CMac production as you well know on the show we talk about alumni and donor engagement strategies in higher education. Uh, we are broadcasting live today, and we're celebrating our one-year anniversary, uh, so we're excited. We've got a, a special show today with a really exciting guest, uh, Karin Davies, who is a two-time Olympic gold medalist. We're excited to chat with you about that, um, but uh, Chris, what uh, what are you doing? Where are you at? What's going on?
1: I've spent the last day, and then this afternoon, it'll be at Denison University in Granville, Ohio. Beautiful campus, great institution. One of the best presidents I've ever met in my whole career. They're amazing, Adam Weinberg. He's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, it's Denison University. Today and tomorrow, and I'll be at Gettysburg. Or yesterday and today and tomorrow, and I'll be at Gettysburg. So, <laughs> quite the whirlwind.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, this, as I mentioned, great show today with, with Karen Davies, Olympic gold medalist, two times. And she certainly serves as the volunteer president of the USOPA, which is pronounced USOPA. And stands for the United States Olympians and Paralympians Association. Uh, this is one of the most prestigious alumni associations that you uh, can be a part of, which includes a group of 5,000 plus Americans who represented the United States in Olympic and Paralympic competition. So, huge deal. We're excited to have Karen, Karen, excuse me. I probably will do that one more time, uh, but I will get 90% right. Uh, so, Chris, this is one-year anniversary of Alumnus. Um, I'm pretty proud of what we've been able to build here, and we've got a great community that follows the show every other week. Um, so when you think about over the last year, some of the successes, some of the things that have come up on the podcast, you know what stands out?
1: Um, for, well, a, a lot of it's... Um, credit to you and your vision for this and the work you've done to put it together. And so kudos to you for all the hard work and congrats for the one year of this show. I think it's our 23rd episode. We might've missed a couple every other week along the way around holidays, but otherwise we've been doing this consistently and the the, the viewers are growing and we're hearing more and more great feedback on it. So I'm thrilled with it Um, in terms of any favorites along the way. It really depends on who's listening. I'll answer that question based on who I know is on the, on the webinar. Um, but I've enjoyed all of them and what I what I love about them is you know is when when a guest gets provocative and they say something that's a little bit out there and and we could have a really fun conversation about it and um, so I've, I've enjoyed them and I, I think they've been helpful from from an industry perspective but uh, a lot of good content I'm not gonna pick one because I'll get in trouble if I say anything <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I have to admit, one of my favorite moments was when we started the show with Howard Wolf, and we asked him about his philosophy on advancement, and he sort of immediately like puts the question back on Thank us. In <laughs> <us. laughs> what we were talking about, which I thought was just a great moment. We got a lot of compliments on that show, and I actually think that you know part of the reason that folks listen is to hear a diverging set of opinions on yeah. different matters, and to not hear the same same things, which which is exciting. Uh, and I always love talking about that. But um, so, you know, this has been, I know, Chris, a super exciting year. And it's a super exciting show for you today, combining your three favorite topics, alumni engagement, volunteer management, and Olympic competition. So how pumped are you for today?
1: Um, very. This will be my uh, favorite guest by far, because <laughs> um, she's been the one coming up next. Though. Um, yeah. You know, this project has been a lot of fun for me to work on and I've never felt more pressure to deliver on. So we'll talk about this in a little bit, but but delivering to people who I view as my idols, Olympians is, uh, especially Olympic gold medal winners along the way, um, has been uh, more pressure than I've ever felt before from a client, but welcomed and enjoyed it. It's been fantastic. We're looking forward
0: to the conversation today. Yeah, Karin will be my second gold medalist that I've ever spoken to. I grew up in a little town in Vermont that actually produced a bunch of Olympians, including a winter moguls gold medalist by the name of Hannah Carney
2: cool.
0: and um, uh, so I got to know Hannah pretty well over the years but okay so we're going to bring uh, Karin out to the show but before we do we are actually going to play a video from the Beijing 2008 Olympics that uh, as a way to introduce uh, Karin and then uh, we'll get to chatting with her about her work.
2: best times out on the water is what they call flow. You're not really thinking about what you're doing. Everything's happening automatically. My favorite part about rowing is to be part of a very close knit team where you for the rest of your life will be connected to those people.
0: That's a heck of a warm up, and actually, the first video we've ever played on Alumnus. No, was awesome. Awesome. Great. Well done, really, really dramatic music. Uh, but uh, Karin Davies,
2: Welcome to it's great to have you. Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me and Chris. I just want to point out that in addition to your anniversary today, it's also my anniversary, but I'm a little older than one. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: this is your uh, wedding it's my anniversary?
2: No, it's my birthday. <laughs> oh, it's your birthday. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Well, happy birthday. Thank you.
1: I knew that. I had forgotten it, but we will celebrate somehow, Cara, and I promise. Thank you for being <laughs> here on your birthday.
0: Come, come on, Marshall. Geez, we have a birthday <laughs> celebration here on the on the show. How could we forget this? This is okay. Um, should we sing? <laughs> no. We'll, we'll, we'll save yet. that. We'll save singing for the bonus segment. All All right. Right. Okay. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, car impressive. Um, obviously you are, um, two-time Olympic gold medalist. Great to have you on the show. Um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, your, uh, your life, your history, your background, your, your crooked half, your crooked mile, so to speak. Where did you grow up? How did you get into rowing? where did you go to school? And then maybe a little bit about what you do professionally.
2: Yeah. I'm from Ithaca, New York, small town. I got recruited at an early age to row because I was very tall. I'm actually 6'4", so by the age of 12, I was probably 6 foot. And the coach of the high school rowing team spotted me in the supermarket, and he like strode up purposefully, and he said, I want you for rowing. And I thought this was terrifying, but uh, he eventually convinced me to come down and try it out, and I was good at it, so I liked it, and kept doing it more and kept getting better at it. I ended up rowing as an undergrad at Harvard, also known as Radcliffe. We raced under the the banner Radcliffe. Mm. Uh, Went on to the national team, obviously to the Olympic team. Uh, I raced in my second Olympic Games. No, excuse me, my third Olympic Games. They all run together after a while. Um, (laughs) Was actually halfway through law school, went to Columbia for law school. And I'm now a lawyer. I represent small businesses
1: Wow. Well, Karen, I've never met you in person. So if you hadn't told me you were 6'4 right now, um, I would be
0: seeing you in a, a week from now at the reunion event looking up. So now, are most rowers uh, tall? I mean, when I think of tall and advantage for athletics, I think obviously of like volleyball and, and basketball. But so being, being tall has a real advantage for rowing.
2: Yes. Yeah. All. All of my teammates were tall. The shortest was five but that was like unusual. Most of the women are kind of six foot, and most of the men are more.
1: Does Th- that to do with length of stroke ultimately? Yes. Is that where the leverage comes from? Yeah, it's the same in swimming, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Swimming, the elite, most elite level swimmers are tall.
2: Yeah, and they got the, the long arms and torsos. Right. Rowers mostly right. have long legs. Got it, got it.
0: Well, so, uh, Karin, how did you get involved as a volunteer for the USOPA, USOPA, and and have you volunteered as an alum for any of your alma maters before this? Uh, What was your pathway to volunteer leadership?
2: You know, it was really a case of FOMO. I got this mailing in 2008 that said, run for office in our Alumni Association, except for it's, it's not called the Alumni Association, but you know, in, in our association, Olympians and Paralympians Association. And I had never heard of it before, but I thought, oh, sure. Well, I'll fill out the candidate statement and mail it in. And I forgot all about it until a few months later when the then president, John Naber, uh called me and congratulated me being elected as a vice president. And I kind of went, wait, what, what did I sign up for? Um And I've been doing doing penance ever since not really i've enjoyed it it's um it's been it's been tough but uh also very rewarding
0: um so chris how did you and karen meet
1: so let me just make a follow-up on her comment about the previous president john neighbor is a three-time olympic gold medal winning he was a backstroker freestyler phenomenal and when i was 10 in the 76 Olympic Games, John was on the team that to this day is viewed as one of the best Olympic teams of all time. They won like something like 30 out of 35 medals you could possibly win that year. It was unbelievable. So John, I've met my idols in this process, which has really been cool. But Karen and I have a mutual friend you mentioned earlier. Um, so Karin reached out to a gentleman named Gene Sykes, who was involved as a volunteer um, board member, board and trustee at Stanford University. Gene said to Karin, "You should talk to Howard Wolf. He's got runs the best alumni program at Stanford." So Karin called Howard. Howard listened and said, "You need to talk to Chris Marshall." <laughs> so he put uh, Howard put me uh, in touch, and we hit it off. And the first get Howard actually said at the end of it, you can imagine Howard saying this, Ryan, because you know him. He said, "Chris, I want you to do this. I want you to reach out, but do it pro bono. Just do it because it's the right thing to do." And I said, "Sure, Howard. I will absolutely do that for you." <laughs> and about three months into the project, uh, all pro bono. one of the people that work on the staff at USOPC said, Chris, we're gonna pay you now to do this work from this point forward. So it was nice that it uh, started off in a really fun way. And, you know, it it was just a perfect uh, match for me thinking about alumni engagement with Olympic athletes. It was, so I said, no problem, did it. And that was how we connected. It's been fun. And you've been doing penance ever since. Penance ever since. <laughs> I should add that to the end of my se- conversation, especially the last week. Uh, Karin and I will tell you more about the past week of, well, she had a little bit to do, but I've been doing all the work to
0: deliver this final report to them that we're going to talk about in our show later on today. But uh, that's it. Yeah. Well, so Karen, how's it been working with Chris? So where are you in the project? Uh, what can you uh, share about it? What are you excited about? You have to be nice here, Karin. Well, you don't have so, to, you don't have to, it's, it's okay.
2: Well, I feel kind of bad sometimes because once I, I sniff like an iota of competence, I jump all over it. <laughs> so <laughs> so I can tell that Chris knows what he's doing. And so I'm just like always sending him things. What do you think of this? Uh, do you agree with me on that? Um, so he's just been getting bombarded, but it's been really helpful because, um, you know, this is my first experience with an alumni organization to answer your earlier question, Ryan. Um, no, I hadn't, uh, volunteered with any of my other alma maters, although I have since, I'm not involved with Oxford, um, where I did an MBA, but, um, yeah, so this is my, my first experience and, and my first experience, especially trying to leave volunteers. And so sometimes I just, I was like, I felt like I was going crazy. I was like, am I expecting too much? Am I a bad leader? Like, why can't I make this work? Why is this organization not doing everything that it could? And I believe it should. Um, so it's been nice to to work with Chris and understand what's what we're not doing right, what we could do better. Um, and that it's not all because I just suck as a leader. <laughs>
0: Well, what, like, let's dive into, color that in just a little bit more for us. You know, like what um, are some of the things that you think the organization ought to be doing better? You know, what are some of the things the organization does really well? Like, I know a lot of listeners are alumni relations professionals and they manage alumni association boards. And I would love to hear your perspective on just kind of what you think should be happening and, and what could be better.
2: So we we have a, a kind of, situation where a small group of people basically do most of everything. Um and and there's there's a lot to be done because not only is this alumni organization responsible for ourselves, we also are responsible for finding people to serve on other committees and boards within the Olympic movement. Um, and so I found myself just tapping the same 20 people over and over again. And I I just wasn't able to get broader buy-in or visibility. Like if you ask, honestly, if you ask most Olympians or Paralympians, um, what is USOPA? They would say, I have no idea. I've never heard of you. So the real issue is that most people, you know, they may even want to get involved. I don't know, but I can't reach them because they don't know we exist. Uh, so we just haven't done a great job of engaging the bulk of our membership. It's really just, as I said, a, a few people who are very, involved and very aware. So I think that's what we could and should be doing better. Um, instead of a few people doing a lot of work each, we can kind of spread the load a around and have a lot of people doing a little bit of work each and, and get a lot more buy-in because really our, our job is to uh, inspire people to make the Olympic and, Paralympic, Olympic and Paralympic movements more visible in this country.
0: Yeah, thank you for coloring that in. Um, Connecting the dots just a little bit for listeners, what lessons from your rowing career and Olympic success have you applied to your life, your work, and of course this particular volunteer role?
2: I think one of the most important lessons I learned as an athlete was actually, wasn't the times that I made the Olympic team or won an Olympic gold medal. It was actually more recently when I failed to make an Olympic team. I tried for Tokyo for my fourth Olympic team and I didn't make it and that was a really it was really hard for me (laughs) I had never not succeeded at, at something like that that I had tried and along the way um so I was I was returning to the training center rejoining a team where people didn't know me clearly felt threatened by me um didn't really welcome me in and it took me a long time to integrate into the team and Eventually, I realized that um, what I had been doing wrong is I had I had come back and just put my head down and worked as hard as I could in the way I knew how, and I hadn't really shared any of my struggles or my fears with my teammates. And I think they looked at me and thought, um, "Oh, this is easy for her." She someone someone said to me, um, "You just act entitled. You act like you're going to make the team no matter what." Uh, so I had to learn to be a little bit more vulnerable. If I wanted to be a leader, I had to share that this is hard for me too. Um, and then, well, I didn't make the team. Moving on, uh, got elected president, and I just like threw myself into the work. I was doing probably twenty hours of work a week uh, for the first few months, and I burned myself out really quickly. And I, I was I was looking around. I was like, "Why is nobody helping me?" And then I realized it was because I hadn't shown how hard it was working and I hadn't asked people for help. And eventually, um, last year we had our first in-person meeting and, and I actually just broke down crying and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like I'm, I, I need help. Things need to change. We need to figure something out because I'm already burned out and it's been, you know, a year. Um, and I think that really, first of all, that really brought people closer to me. Um, and they really rallied around me. And second of all, that made people realize like, oh, it really isn't working. We didn't even know. So things, there's been a lot of change since then. And, and I learned that, that, yeah, sometimes as a leader, you have to share what's hard for you as well as try to share what you do well.
1: That that moment of that vulnerability that you, that you let people see is a lesson for everyone in that equation. And it is clearly a moment where it shifted things and we're now moving to it. Hopefully we're getting to a better place. But, but uh, I love the fact that you shared that story where a, a leader can be vulnerable is part of leadership. I think that's a good lesson for people to hear and kudos for being able to share that story.
0: Chris, you've been working with Karen and the USOPA for eight months now. Uh, what have you noticed about how they're thinking about their overall role, uh, the role of the board, and individual roles of volunteers? I, I know this is something that the alumni boards that we work with all the time, right? We're constantly talking about the role of the board, and um, we we've, we we've talk about it on this show too. Yeah, there, there there's so many parallels. There are a few differences
1: for sure of where this is, how this is different, but you could line up pretty much everything we've talked about in the higher ed alumni engagement world and have a parallel on this side of it. I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, the, the fact that Karin as an athlete did not know that you used SOPA, what, what it was that it existed until she he raised her hand as an alum, alumni volunteer. And that most U- Olympians, Paralympians don't know what it is today is the fact that we haven't done what we call in our business, early engagement, you know, planting those seeds of alumni loyalty, letting them know that they're not just here for four years, it's forever. And the things we talk about of, Working with current students and our youngest graduates uh, of in higher ed context is the exact same issue we're facing here. How do we get USOPA on the radar of these athletes who are, you know, hundred percent focused on making the team and winning a medal? I talked to several other recent athletes who said, "I don't even know, you know." They just didn't know because that's what they were, were focused on other things. It wasn't on the radar, so that's a challenge here. And, and in this case, this is a um, almost eighty year old, or this organization was founded in its origin or, or, original form right after World War II. And, and for almost 50 years, a half a century, it was a social regional chapter group of people that was independent of the USOPC. It wasn't until 1992. So 45 years went by before USOPC, our governing body for sports said in the United States, said, um, we're recognizing this as the official alumni group. And from that point till today, so for the past 30 years, the, the challenge that I've seen for that group is sort of while they've had attempts along the way at having a clear mission statement and vision of what they want to do and a strategic plan in several different iterations along the way have been in place. Um, What I've noticed is that it often shifts when the new leader comes on board. So whoever the new five or six past leaders, whenever they come on, they've had an agenda that they wanted to promote. And that became the focus of USOPA. And, And that didn't allow anything to really stick and stay in place over the course of those 30 years because it was a shift each time. All in the lane, but it was a shift in the lane big enough that they didn't really have a clear focus, clear role. And one of the things I've been working with them on very clearly is, is to build that. What is it the role of this group should be and how they should be moving going forward. And that should stay the same. And as presidents and leadership changes, they keep that on in place and maybe the priorities might change slightly throughout each course of a presidency, but not the main mission of the group. So that's, that's been the, the biggest I've seen and um, where there's opportunity and, Car, I'd love to hear your reaction. We we haven't we you've read what I've written about this. We talked about it a little bit as recently as yesterday, but anything you want to add to my comment there, I'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah, um, I'm actually reminded of something John Neighbor said to me when I first got elected, which was basically do less. Yeah, uh, <laughs> do less and do it better. So you've been really helpful, Chris, in in identifying that problem that we've just been kind of a little bit too scattered. And now we're kind of looking to you to help us figure out like, what is that one, what is that thing that we're going to do better? And I think it starts with something we already talked about, which is um, getting uh, raising awareness.
0: Yeah. I recall my own experience when I arrived at my previous employer and it felt like the alumni board was trying to do everything and have like be responsible for all the key metrics that associated with the university. They wanted to be involved in enrollment and admissions and retention and career success and philanthropy. And it really wasn't until we focused and we zeroed in on a few initiatives that we could do well together, uh, that things really changed and it began to thrive and there began to feel like more of a purpose. Uh, but Karin, as you're thinking about your tenure as the president and, um, what are some things that you'd, you'd like to see accomplished?
2: Um, so, I've thought a lot about what like what do I want out of this? What do I want my legacy to be? And for one thing, I would love to basically make myself redundant. Um, all the all the work that I'm doing and and um, all the change that I'm making, I would love if nobody ever has to do it again. And if, if the structure completely changes and there's never another president, um, fine. you know, vote me out, kick me out. I don't care. <laughs> Um, Because I really want it to be clear that I'm here for athletes. And um, when I say athletes, I mean, you know, currently competing athletes, many of our members are still competing, but also retired athletes, because it's a real tough transition to retire from elite sport and then try to make it in the real world. So I know a lot of athletes need support with that. And I think that, that we can help. I also recognize that um, I may not get a lot of thanks. You know, if people don't know what usopa is, they probably don't know who I am and what I'm doing. And also, I'm probably gonna piss people off along the way because if you make significant changes, there are always gonna be someone who's not happy about the changes. And so I've made peace with the fact that some, you know, I I might lose some relationships, some people, um, might dislike me after this, and and
0: that's okay. If you're leading, not everyone's going to like you, right? I mean, it's just sort of one of the laws of leadership. Um, but it sounds like you've really got a great perspective on how to forge ahead and and how to be thinking about the role. Chris, you were going to say something. Um, I was just getting ready for your next question, but oh, uh, fair enough. <laughs> I will add this. So another example
1: of a parallel between a higher ed board work that we've done and uh, talked about on this show and uh, USOPA is is the, is the focus. Um, you, you've heard me say this, Ryan, at least four times on this show over the past year, and you know, the three most important words in real estate is location, location, location. In alumni engagement, it's focus, focus, and focus. And that's what we're doing. It's the same lesson we're applying here. And Aaron's been great. We actually, I actually asked a group of leadership uh question what has been the role of usopa in the past what is it today and what should it be in the future and i got great we had a great conversation we had email responses on it and karen wrote me this great email and it said i'm going to take out the s and say role. <laughs> and she wrote a whole paragraph about our role as volunteers and helping promote olympism and uh, helping supporting the next generation as volunteers so she's the the narrow i think the lesson that came from john but but John neighbor as you referenced, but that focus on that one potential thing is where we're going to have the biggest impact. I just love that you were able to get to that level.
0: And the idea of, you know, in, in colleges and universities, the alumni board can spe- pay special attention to helping students graduate and doing whatever they want to do first or next. Uh, Karin, the way you describe that focus on helping athletes who have are in the know, the process of retiring who who might go from their full-time training, right? To something entirely different, which would be very emotionally, uh, stressful, I would think, right? And, um, it sounds like a really great way to focus the organization.
2: Yeah, it's, it's really tough transition. Um, it, it takes you by surprise. I mean, it's such a tough, tough transition. There are athletes who have committed suicide because they didn't know what to do next i mean that's how hard it is um so just to have someone reach out and be like it's okay i've been there i know what you're feeling uh let me help can mean the world to someone It could save their life
1: yeah there's a great story um it's a swimming story that i heard along the way uh but there's many other athletes who just face what Karin just described but it was in the 2008 olympic games when michael phelps won his eight gold medals one of the early events that he was on a relay team that won. There was this famous, it's considered the best swim of Olympic history. And there was an American relay up against the French team. French were winning the whole way. Michael Phelps was on the relay, hit swim earlier. And the last guy in the water is a guy named Jason Lezak. And he was behind the guy who was holding the current world record in the event that they were swimming. So here's this journeyman, you know, long-serving veteran Olympic swimmer trying to chase him down to keep Michael Phelps on the streak and ends up passing him, touching him out and winning the gold medal for the U.S. team. And Jason Lezak said, after that Olympic Games, I got up and he was still in the village, at the Olympic Village. He said, I didn't want to raise the blinds in my hotel room or my room to face the world because I didn't know what life was going to be like afterwards. It was a different you know, feeling for him. He just did not – his whole life to that point had been getting to that wall. And then that moment, the next morning, he wakes up and goes, I don't want to open the blinds in my room. I don't want to look outside. It's a pretty compelling story. and He's since gone on to some amazing things, but it's real. It's a real thing.
0: Yeah, well, we've got lots more to talk about with uh, Karin on the bonus section of Alum List. Uh, Thanks for everyone for joining us here live today. Uh, Chris, tell us who we're featuring next two weeks from now.
1: Yeah, what a tough act to follow for this poor guy. (laughs) Adam Compton, who's amazing in himself. He's an Olympic gold medal uh, annual fundraiser is what I'll give him. (laughs) Uh, He works, Adam Compton is the Executive Director of Annual Giving at NC State University. Um, Has built a phenomenal program at a large public institution and runs annually one of the best day of giving programs where they've raised in the 50 to 60 million dollars in a single day, uh, a a day of giving program and Adams, the brains and the and the driver of that program. So he's going to talk to us about some of those secrets that he's what he's put together to make that work at NC State.
0: Awesome. Love Adam. Had, had the chance to meet him last year at the Washburn. That's right. You were on the panel. The right. Yeah, we were on the panel together. Adam's great. Excited to talk with him. And again, with you in two weeks time, uh, Karin, we are going to head over to uh, a quiet Zoom room and record our bonus section of alumnus. But for everyone who's listening, I hope you will subscribe to the podcast edition of Alumless if you have not already. And uh, we'll see you all in two weeks. All right. We are back to the bonus section of List. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast edition of the show. We're grateful to be in your podcast feed every two weeks. And we are back with Karin Davies, Chris Marshall to pick up the conversation about uh, the uh, awesome work that's happening at the USOPA, right? And Karin's role leading that organization on behalf of the other Olympians and Para-Olympians in the United States. 5,000 plus is the number, which uh is that's a that's a big number. I, I, I hadn't have any context of, of how many Olympians there are living at this moment. Is is that right? That's the the number of um US uh men and women that have served in those, in the Paralympian and and Olympics uh, that are living today.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, It's closer to 6,000 and those are the people for whom we have contact information. Uh, There's another, I don't know, 1,000 or so that we don't have their information.
0: Yeah. Another okay. parallel between higher ed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Universities and their data, right? Um, it's the, the number one challenge I think is to stay current with folks after they graduate and move along in life. But Carl, let's go back just a little bit and talk about your Olympic journey. Um, uh, my guess is that, uh, it's an all-encompassing effort, right? Uh, did you have time to do things outside of rowing in school? And and where we talked a little bit about where your volunteer journey began, but maybe we can talk a little bit more.
2: Well, I'm not sure if I had time, but I made time. And that was actually one of the, the things that I did differently from a lot of my teammates. Uh, a lot of people, when they're training, they are very focused on just one thing. And of course, that's not to say that I wasn't focused, but I also knew that I was a better athlete when I had other things in my life. And I learned this as a young athlete when, um, when things weren't going well. And I realized that if I had all my identity wrapped up in one thing, then I could quickly spiral into negativity and my performance would suffer so i made sure that i had other things in my life um i mean as an example um in college i took up ballroom dancing um and i i always made sure to have friends outside of rowing so that um it, it was almost a bit of a, a mental break from the times when when as i said training wasn't going well do you still do ballroom dancing <laughs> i don't actually but um when I met my, uh, fiance, I, one of the first things I asked him was do you dance? And if not, are you willing to learn? And we did take tango lessons together.
0: My wife always tells me to stop dancing whenever she sees me dancing. So I'm always interested in that as a couple's thing. Um, so that's pretty cool. You're like a link from Seinfeld when you get on the dance floor, right? And that's pretty much I'm all thumbs. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but that's a great story. And so keeping friends outside of rowing was important. Doing those other things to um, stay connected with other networks and other activities is important. Um, actually, I was wondering you know, how much rowing did you do? Like, what was the training regimen like? Like, how do you become an Olympic rower? And and what's that, I would imagine a pretty grueling process like, right? Um
2: yeah, most people, most people start rowing in college or sometimes high school. And then uh, after college, if you are one of the, the top rowers in the country and there are ways the coaches figure that out, you get invited to the Olympic training center. And when you're at the Olympic training center, it, it pretty much becomes your life. Um, very few people have jobs. And if they do, it has to be completely flexible. You need to be able to show up at training. sort of a moment's notice because it gets rescheduled for weather and things. And we generally train three times a day, um, two to three times on the water. And, uh, occasionally we do weights or other things. Um, so we end up, let's see, so we end up doing more than six hours of actual training a day. And by the time you add in time to recover and physical therapy and proper nutrition and all that, it really becomes a full-time job.
0: Mm. Goodness. I would think just eating enough food to. Uh, fill up after you have burned six hours worth of rowing calories would take a lot of
2: time. <laughs> it's, um, you know, you, a lot of people think like, Oh, boo hoo. Like, you you know, you're losing weight and you have to eat more food, but it really is a miserable. I <laughs> <hard. laughs> remember eating this like foot long sub and lemonade and chips. And I literally just rolled out of the chair onto the floor and lay there for half an hour because I was so full. I couldn't move. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, making time to eat and refill those calories. Um, what about your academic journey? Harvard, Columbia Law, MBA from Oxford. Yes, you've obviously are an academic uh, underachiever, Karin. That is for sure. Uh, are you connected to and, and active in any of these uh, institutions as a graduate? And are there initiatives at any of these schools uh, that you try to or that you'd like to bring to uh, USOPA?
2: I actually serve, currently serve on the executive committee of the Oxford Women's Boat Club. So I am still involved there. Um, and wait, You're asking, what did I bring to you? So, from there, what did I? Or just cross pollination? How about cross
0: pollination (laughs) is a good way to look at it. But you know, I think largely I'm interested in like, are you involved with your alma maters? And is there anything that you, any of your alma maters are doing that you think might be an interesting thing to bring to your current volunteer role that you're sort of familiar with?
2: One of the things that that I think um, all of my alma maters do very well, um, and we're working on at the the Oxford Book Club. Uh, is just providing relevant programming and information to their group of alums. Like, for example, I get emails from Oxford probably once a week about webinars and things that I can attend. And it's nice because since the pandemic, everyone has figured out you don't actually have to be local. Um, So I, I, most of them, you know, I'm not interested in, but I do occasionally see something where I'm like, Oh, that's really cool. And I sign up and, and I listen in or I go, I went to a um, alumni networking event for Oxford that was in Boston last night. Um, And I think it's, it's just really important to understand that as an alumni organization, you actually have to provide value. One, um, one person said, you got to show them the goods. Like if you have something that people are interested in and, and especially at a university, you know, they have all kinds of, things that people could be interested in that you could learn, um, you gotta show it to them. They're not gonna go looking for it. You gotta put it right in front of them. So um, there's actually a lot of USOPC programs for, we were talking earlier about how difficult the transition is to transition away from elite sport. There's a lot of programs that the USOPC offers to assist with that transition. And um, as the alumni organization, we can do a better job of, of getting the word out. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Again, another great parallel um, you're drawing on. But the other uh, thing I'll, I'll mention is that I got a text from Karin last night that said, she, uh, Ryan, this is for you, that she was at an uh, Oxford event and met Christine Fairchild and had a oh, conversation. Really? And, and she said, I'm on Chris's show tomorrow. And I, and I told Karin that Christine's going to be our guest later this summer on the same exact show. Small world.
0: Love Christine. Uh, yeah, I think... Um there is um, definitely opportunities to showcase value. It's really important for alma maters to do that because it's one of the reasons I struggle with the phrase give back as uh, an appeal from an alma mater to say, you know, give back. And I think we got to always more be in the framework where we need to alumni paid for their degrees or you earned your gold medals. And so there's There's no owing of anything. It's just, you have to continue to earn that through providing value, right? As alumni are moving forward in their lives and not just clearly communicating opportunities to engage and participate, but providing valuable experiences, programs, opportunities, connections, right? That are going to help alumni as they move forward in life. And maybe they'll choose to pay it forward, uh, but the phrase give back, I always struck me as a challenging one because of the energy and the tuition dollars, not that go into the college experience. And of course, what you just described as the the training regimen and the sacrifices and the effort that went into achieving your goals of of participating in the Olympics and, and being on a winning team, right? It's uh, an interesting aspect of uh, of the work we do.
2: Uh-huh. Couldn't agree with more.
0: Yeah. There, there's a, a great line I learned from the folks at Duke University where
1: they said, "We have to stop going to our alumni with our hands out, and go to our alumni with our arms open,
2: mm-hmm. you know, our hands mm-hmm. arms
1: full." I think they talked about that with a, you know, the metaphor being that we're going to give you more as you go through your forever after your graduation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like that. So let, let's, um Karen, let's get some advice from you for folks here who may be listening, or even if they're on, on a staff and not, but someone who's considering taking on a volunteer leadership role your potential successor in your role currently, what advice would you give them? What would you tell them to do? What's the most important lesson that you've learned along the way?
2: Well, number one you, have, number yeah. one, you have to make it fun. People don't volunteer because they want to work hard. They volunteer because they want to feel good. and And of course, part of it is working hard, right? Because you want to make a difference. That's the other thing. It has to be fun and you have to, people have to feel like they're making progress. That's what, them. That's what makes them feel good in the long run. Fun is, you know, short term, feel good. Um, making progress, making a difference is long run. And so, um, yeah, make it, make it a community, get people together, make it a group thing, um, and then make it really clear. You did this and here's what came from it. Thank you, right? Make sure to thank people and show them what came out of their hard work.
0: Yeah. A little gratitude goes
2: a long way, right?
1: But let's, you talk about, you know, kind of what's on your mind this year and having that focus and trying to accomplish certain things. Even I would call, you know, this year has been sort of organizational reset next year, focus on volunteerism and building out on the work we've just completed, but let's fast forward five years from now, we're going into LA 28, a home game for uh, U.S. Olympic teams. Um, what role do you see USOPA playing? Where are we at in the in the journey for USOPA at that point, given what we're doing, what foundation we're building today?
2: I would love to use LA28 as a reason to make retired athletes feel relevant again. Hmm. Uh, because, you know, you get your 15 minutes of fame. Some people don't even get that. Uh, and then, you know, the world just kind of forgets about you. Um actually a funny story I applied for a I forget what you call it but like a verified account on Instagram because Instagram gave all the 2016 Olympians a verified account and I had just won a gold medal in 2012 and they they denied me they basically told me you're no longer relevant only 2016 (laughs) Olympians get a verified account um so that was a real harsh lesson of like all right I'm man I'm over the hill," (laughs) you know um but at the same time, we we can be relevant in the form of inspiring others and giving back. Like I go to schools and I go to youth clubs and especially rowing clubs, and people are just so happy to meet me and so inspired and they just love it. And they don't care that it's been 10 years since I last won an Olympic gold medal. Um, social media might care, but when when you get in front of someone in person and, and you tell them their story and it and it hits them emotionally, um, that's, that's a real, uh, it's a real emotional thing for me too. So I'm imagining as, as the whole country gets excited about LA and they want to hear about stories of athletes, um, I don't think people necessarily care if it's an athlete on their way to LA or an athlete who maybe competed in LA 84 and can say, you know, here's, here's what it was like last time LA had the Olympic games. Um. I want to get people out and interacting with their communities and remembering how cool the experience was and how unique because we tend to forget.
0: 16 Days of Glory, right? Uh it was the original LA um, movie that came out of that. And so what do you think it means, Karen, when it comes down to sort of the practical ways in which a al- lot that would make alums feel that way as LA 28, 2028 comes about? Is it events? Is it stronger communications? Is it access to networks? Like, what do you think those ex-athletes, current athletes as well, what do they want?
2: Especially in, in relation to LA 20, I think we need a lot of events around the country. And those events need to have two things. They need to have um, other athletes, because everyone loves to reminisce. Um, and and they need people from the community that we can inspire. And, and like I said, realize that um, it is actually a really unique thing to go to the games. Um, people just want to get together.
0: Yeah. I went to graduate school in, in Brisbane, Australia. So I'm excited for uh, the 2032 games, I'm looking way out in the horizon. <laughs> but um, we'll be I on the list was like
2: amazing, best games ever. Which one?
0: Sydney. Last time it was in Australia. Um so question for both Karin and Chris on this one. Have you seen any parallels between USOPA and a college or university based alumni association? Similarities or differences? And Chris, why don't you lead off on your thoughts on similarities and differences and, and then Karin, you follow up there. We've, we've talked
1: about a bunch throughout. Um, the early engagement example I gave is a good one. How do we plant those seeds and let people know that USOPA exists? It's the same thing we think about when with students enrolled at a place that they're not just here for four years, it's forever. Um, the board challenges is another really good parallel. I mean, the focus, the, what work the board does and doesn't do is, is an important one. Um, the whole notion around focusing on uh, items that are going to be most impactful around engagement. I'll, I'll give you another one we haven't mentioned yet is um, you know challenges around data management and sharing of contact information, and registrations for events, so technical things that go on. These are the exact same mission. We had, there's, so next week, I'll, I'll get to meet Karin in person um, at a reunion event they're having out in um, Colorado Springs. And several hundred alumni are coming back for this event. And to put on an event of that scale, you, anybody listening who's in the business knows what that's like, right? It's They do events with thousands of people for many, many reunions. And it comes down to things like data and technology to manage those programs. The, the big difference here though is, that I found is that, and maybe this is true in colleges in some areas, but across the board for Olympians, this is an important group of people to keep data, confidentiality, causing information confidential. So the sharing of information is one that I've never seen the level of protection and, and scrutiny over of trying to make sure that this doesn't get out to the public. Cause it's, you know, you know, at a university, you're going to find people who, like, you don't want your top donors, your board members, your famous actors and athletes out there in the online directory, for example. But that leaves at, like, 2%. The other 90% will put them in the directory. People can reach out to them and connect work. You can't do that in this context. It's a little different. You know, password protections and access to things are all make it a little bit more challenging. Um, but confidentiality around – confidentiality, even things like um, – you know, on the reunion website, can we have a little button that says click here and see who's coming? You know, in, in, in most colleges, you would put that in automatically. In this case, it might not be something we should do. It's, you know, there are things like that that are, that I've seen heightened around confidentiality of data and contact information. Car, anything else you would build on that or add to?
2: Yeah, I've seen some parallels with a university. You have interest groups and you have class years, right? You might have like someone was involved with the do- drama club and they graduated in 2005. And you have the same thing with uh, Olympians and Paralympians. We are all part of the sport and we all went to a specific games a year. So I have okay. regular reunions with my rowing teammates. And um, also, for example, um, one of the 1968 athletes organized a reunion for all of the athletes from 1968 and got an amazing turnout. And that's nice because then you can reminisce about where you were and what, the, what was going on in the world at the time. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Do
0: you make
2: them? Sorry,
1: jumping real quick here, right? It's like uh, in colleges, uh, universities, you have what's your class year, you know, what's your affinity group, and what's your chapter zip code area. And the USOPA model has been based for you know half a century or more on where do you live, what's the zip code, Mm -hmm. and whether or not people choose to come out and rally around that point. is is a question I had all the way through the process, Frank. Is it sport or is it year? And most people probably tell you it's the sport.
0: Yeah. My, my question was actually dovetail to that one is, do you meet people in the Olympic village that are like in the sh- having you're having a shared experience that become your friends for a lifetime? Or is it such a sort of you're spending so much time with your teammates that like you mentioned, you know, the Olympic year being important and then the sport being important. But I just, I guess I was wondering is, you know, among, with the year concept, are you do you make relationships with those in the Olympic mm-hmm. village? become you know lifelong friends or is it just too to short of a time
2: yeah I found less that uh there's kind of a, a cross-pollination of friendships across sports because as you say we have such different schedules and certain sports compete at different times and whatever um but I do find that I've been able to create lasting friendships from other countries rowers in other countries we see them not only at the Olympic Games, but also every year at the World Championships. Um, so just last month I was visiting with some friends in Holland that um have been friends with these women for 20 years.
0: Mm. Yeah. Another parallel, Chris, as we talked about earlier, was the the career assistance. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Transition yeah. out of, yeah. Yep. That's a big one. And the other one I was wondering about, actually, Karin, is the idea of traditions. You know, it would imagine that they're like leading up to a new Olympic Games, whether it's summer or winter, like that there's an opportunity to create some traditions for athletes, ex-athletes around. And maybe they already exist. uh, But just curious on your thoughts around traditions that sort of run in in parallel to the Games, perhaps, whether they already exist or whether they could be created. Mm.
2: We definitely have some traditions in rowing um, and I mentioned other sports have them too. It seems to me like it's more sports specific than Olympic or Paralympic game specific. Like as an example, our coach always brings a bottle of water from the last Olympic course we rode at to the next Olympic games. So he saves it for four years, brings it and then pours it over the bow of the boat before Mm -hmm. we go out and race.
0: That's fun. That's a great symbol. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Particularly if the last time was a, are really successful
2: yeah true I don't know what he would do if <laughs> it didn't do well
0: don't you dare pour that water from the you know dump it out on the dock
2: <laughs> there are also some really interesting rowing traditions um rowing is the only sport I know of that actually does not use a podium everyone when you get your medal you're all just standing on a dock and you're all on equal footing which I really like mm.
0: And that notice
1: that i should say that
0: they showed them all on the dock together, even across there. That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Karin, last week we had Dan Olds, a friend of ours, who's the vice president of alumni um, at Bowdoin College. And we spoke about volunteer management on that show. As a volunteer, what advice do you have for alumni engagement professionals, staff members, those folks who you might work be working with um, who are listening right now? As well, uh, what do they need to hear about being a volunteer?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, Well, part goes back to what I was saying about leading volunteers, whether you yourself are a volunteer. Uh, You have to make it fun, and you have to give people a sense of having made a difference. I think that's number one. Um, And then also, I guess just... uh, I mean, everyone probably already knows this already, right? Like um, adjust expectations because you can't, you know, you can't fire a volunteer and, and you can't push a volunteer. Like you kind of just got to take what you get. Um, but i found the the best way to motivate volunteers is to figure out what they enjoy, not what needs to be done. And, and that's hard, right? Because we were just talking about how you really have to focus on like one thing. And so sometimes the thing that needs to be done is not what anyone enjoys doing. So that's, that's a really thin line to walk. But, um, if you just ask someone to do something, there's not someone, something that they enjoy, they're not going to do it. So you got to figure out what each person likes doing and give him or her something along those lines. Yeah. Great advice.
0: Well, as we wrap up our bonus segments, our, our last question of each episode is about inspiration and So, you know, we wanted to ask you a little bit about your inspiration. Where do you look for it? What do you read? What do you listen to? Uh, Where do you find inspiration, whether that's for you personally or as a motivational speaker or as a role as a volunteer or in your legal career? Where do you look for inspiration?
2: Mm. Um, So I've been thinking a lot lately about the idea of success and what What does that look like? What does it mean? And I've realized, um, of course, easy for me to say, right? Like so many of us have a um unproductive, perhaps even unhealthy obsession with success and and maybe idea of what success is. Um and I can I can tell you, conventional measures of success don't make you happy. Um the glow of winning an olympic gold medal lasts maybe 2 weeks. Someone once said to me if I were you I would never have a bad day. I would just put on all my three olympic medals and I would stand in front of the mirror and just be like you're awesome. <laughs> right? Listener's Karn
0: is doing the air guns right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. She's the she's the man in the mirror. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um yeah, I was like gosh I wish it worked that way it would be so much easier um so I've, I, I'm learning as I get older that um, the 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 motivation that drives you to succeed in this conventional way is um, it's, it's kind of addictive. Like it feels good. Like, oh, I'm going towards these goals, but it doesn't actually bring long term happiness. So I'm trying to find, I'm trying to figure out like what are the things that actually do bring long term happiness, contentment, and focus more on those. And I've, for me, um, it's more in creating community, making sure I have a strong friend group, helping people. And I've realized that that means that I might actually not be as as successful in my career as I thought I would and earn as much money as I thought I would but I I don't think I'll regret that
0: awesome well that is a perfect spot to leave things our conversation for this week Karen Davies two-time Olympic gold medalist for rowing three-time Olympian however right uh, uh didn't we yeah there was yeah. A silver in there there was a silver in there. So we didn't, so it wasn't even, didn't even men- make it to the show, but you're a three time medalist. Uh, and what a fantastic accomplishment. And the work that you're doing right now with USOPA and uh, all of your uh, efforts to help guide that organization forward are awesome. And uh, I know listeners will have really taken away a lot of great insights from your comments today. So thank you for joining us. All right. I'll add
1: a thank you on top and just say, you know, especially on your birthday. And with all the work you do as a volunteer and everything else in your life uh, to take time out to be with us, I agree with what Ryan just ended with. Is that I think you left. Um, I know when I first asked you to do this, you were like, "What? What? Why me to do this?" And and but I think your perspective on this, with professionals who do this work every day, coming from a volunteer, was exactly what we needed to hear. So thank you so much for making this time to do so. Well,
2: thanks, and Chris, so. high
0: five on our on our one year anniversary episode and Carn's yeah. uh, birthday. Perfect guest to have on for our one-year anniversary show.
2: Oh, thank you. I look forward to working with you more, Chris. I'm
0: yeah, great to meet you, Ryan. Celebrations all around. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again, Adam Compton, NC State, in two weeks' time. Bye now. Bye.